Holy Spirit's among us, which is a promising truth this morning uh, as we dive back into Hebrews. We're in chapter 2, so if you've got your Bible this morning, uh, you can go ahead and flip to Hebrews chapter 2. Over the next two weeks, uh, we will spend uh, the entirety of the next two weeks in Hebrews chapter 2. So this morning we'll be in Hebrews 2, 1 through 9, uh, and next week we'll pick up in verse 10 and finish the chapter. Uh, for those of you who I don't know, or if you don't know me, my name's Stephen Partrick. Uh, my family and I have been members here for almost a year, coming up on a year, I think in a couple months or so. Um, we planted a church in Dallas, Texas about five years ago, about the same time that the branch was planted here. And um, over the course of time and God's sovereignty and the way that he tends to work, we felt an overwhelming sense of God's calling on our life to leave, which is a very difficult thing to do. If you've never planted a church, it's hard. If you've never left a church that you've planted, it's really hard, okay? So just trust me, I don't really recommend it, but um, we felt that God was calling us uh, to leave, one for the health of our family, uh, and two for the health of the church. And so I don't know, I know there's a lot of college students in here, which is part of the reason our family wound up here. Um, if you've ever wrestled with identifying your calling, just know that that's a healthy tension. It's a healthy wrestle that the believer goes through as you figure out, not necessarily what God has called you to do, but how God has called you to accomplish what he's called you to do. Does that make sense? All right, let's dive in uh, to Hebrews chapter two. What I'm gonna do is we're gonna break this up into two sections, if that's okay. Uh, if it's not, we're going to do it anyways because it's what I plan to do. So just bear with me. We're going to do the first four verses, um, and then we're going to do the, the last five as, as a collective whole, okay? It's one main idea, and I, my hope this morning is to, to make you aware of that main idea, uh, but to use the two segments that the author is using to get there. So before we read the text, um, when Gabe started a couple weeks ago in Hebrews, he kind of laid out some evidence um, for the authorship of Hebrews. And he kind of came behind and said it a few times that he believes that Luke wrote the book of Hebrews. So I thought it'd be helpful uh, for me to kind of lay out my, who I believe has written the book of Hebrews. Uh, one of the things that's beautiful about the book of Hebrews is this is, some, this is a topic, the authorship of Hebrews, where we can disagree and get along. Gabe is a dear friend of mine. I disagree that Luke wrote the book. Um, I also don't know that. He could be right, okay? So let me just be humble this morning and say, I'm not right most of the time, okay? I have uh, some clear evidences. I've, I've laid my argument out very articulately, educated and all the things, and it's just what I think based on reading the text, okay? I wanna do this for a couple of reasons. If you've, heard, if you've been around for the, uh, the last few months and you've heard me preach, one of my real passions as a pastor is to have people, brothers and sisters, to take the Bible for themselves and read it. I believe in uh, hermeneutics. I believe in interpretation, in taking the Bible, in really wrestling with it, in diving into it on your own, okay? If you're uh, here this morning and really your only taste of the scriptures is Sunday morning, you're not doing it right. I'm being dead serious. So I want to lay out the reasons that I believe someone else wrote the book of Hebrews as a way to tell you and to teach you that hermeneutics and context are very, very important. And the things that you pay attention to as you read the scriptures are important, right? We don't read it like we read a novel, right? Okay, 
here we go. Let's dive into this. So what do we know about the author? That's where I want to start. So what is the book of Hebrews, the letter? Uh, really, it was a sermon that was preached to an audience that we also don't know who that is. I don't have any guesses on who I might think that might be. Um, I do believe that it still matters to us today, and I think that's all that matters. So what do we know about the author? We know, for one, that the, the author was a close associate of Paul. Okay? We see that not only in the theological grid that the author uh, or the preacher is speaking from, uh, but we see it in even some of the language that is used here. It seems a lot like Paul. Does anybody think Paul wrote the book? Can we do this? Am I allowed to do this? We're recording, so do it like this if you need to. I, I, I can make a really good argument for Paul as well. However, there's this verse that I get to preach today uh, that kind of makes me think it's not Paul, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. Okay, So the author was a close associate of Paul. Uh, the author was able to write uh, in a very ornate Greek style. So this is someone that was fairly well educated. Okay, um, This is someone who, who understood the Septuagint, which is basically the Greek interpretation of the Hebrew. Okay, So the Old Testament was not written in English. Did you know that? It was written in Hebrew. Greeks couldn't read Hebrew. So they translated the Hebrew to the Greek, and that's what we call the Septuagint. So this author particularly really knew that well, okay? Their, the, their use of vocabulary, and this is one of the things that I'm going to do today, is we're going to, I don't do this to be dorky. Uh, it's kind of dorky, and I apologize. It's just, that's part of who I am. Uh, but we're going to lean on the Greek text just a little bit, and not as a way to be like, I'm going to teach you to say a Greek word because I don't think that's cool, but because it's very important. Okay, and I want to teach you how to discover those things so that when you're studying the scripture for yourself, you know how to use the text that God has given us today. Does that make sense? So when I say Greek words, I'm not trying to be funny or cool or to get you to put a tattoo on your wrist or anything like that. I'm just saying that it's a, it was the word that they used, and it's an important word. Okay, so the author knew Greek really well. The author uh, particularly had become a Christian out of Judaism, uh, which is an argument for Paul as well, by the way. So let me be fully frank about that. Um, the author was very obviously a Hebrew, right? They understood the language. They titled the book Hebrews. So just throwing that out there, I don't know if that's actual biblical evidence, but my, my Bible actually says Hebrews in it. So we're going to think that that's probably a Hebrew who wrote the book, or at least maybe it was written to the Hebrews. Okay, the fourth thing is the author's understanding of the doctrine of salvation was highly compatible with Paul's doctrine of salvation, okay? So if you think that Paul wrote this book, you can make a really good argument if you've read Paul, okay? If you read, uh, what is the, it's like Wikipedia, but for the Bible, that doesn't count, okay? But if you can go to Romans, which is where you should start, and interpret Romans, exegete it, like basically when we say exegesis, this is, here's what we mean, okay? We mean that you're reading it, okay? You're observing all the things. Uh, anybody, English majors, anyone? Like, are you really good at grammar? Okay, grammar made learning Greek really, really, really hard for me. I didn't understand English grammar, which didn't make it easy learning Greek grammar, okay? But what I do know is that grammar matters, and I wish I had paid more attention in the fourth grade, okay? So grammar matters, and so when you're observing things, it's important to notice things like punctuation and sentence breaks and all those things. Also, for the record, the author didn't write with numbers, okay? So when you see the numbers before a verse, they didn't put that there. We did that, okay, to make it easier to find things. Good? All right, so observation matters. So when we say exegesis, we start with observation, which means we're reading and we're observing what the text says. Then we're going to move from observation to interpretation. And there's a few steps in between, but we're just going to kind of do this, okay? Interpretation left by itself is no good, 
Okay? Interpretation must lead us then to application. That's what we're going to do today. Okay? We're going to observe some things. We're going to try our best to interpret them. We're going to lean on Scripture to do that. And then we're going to try to figure out how to apply it to our lives. Okay? So when we say exegesis, we mean all of those things. Good? You can write it down. You need to put it on the screen. We can't do that. But we could, I guess, if we had planned ahead. We didn't plan ahead. So uh, we're not going to do that today. All right? So the author's understanding of the doctrine of salvation was a lot like Paul's. Okay? Good, good there. The last one is there's a really interesting connection between the author and his connection to Alexandria, which is a place. Okay? There, and, and this connection can lead down a few different paths of authorship, including Paul. Okay? Let me throw that back out there. It can also include Priscilla. You guys know Priscilla. Okay? Some, some people think that Priscilla wrote the book, which maybe. I think that'd be really cool if she did. I don't know. Okay? So uh, there's a connection specifically to Stephen, which is kind of neat for me because we spell our names the same. Not very many people do it that way anymore, but um, Stephen has a speech in Acts chapter 7. There's a lot of language that Stephen uses before his martyrdom that is leveraged in Hebrews. Okay? So go read Romans. Go read Acts. Okay? And then dive into Hebrews. Okay? You also might want to read Leviticus. There's a few other books in the Old Testament that really help us understand, particularly the Psalms. There's some 2 Samuel in here. Okay? The Bible as a whole matters. Okay? We can't move past that. The Bible matters. It was left on purpose. It was written on purpose. And the words that we have were given to us by God in his sovereignty and in his grace. Not so that we could become smart and parse Greek words, but so that we might grow closer to him. Good? Okay, so let's parse some Greek words then. Because I think it might help stir our affections towards God. All right? So let me lay out who I think wrote the book. I think Apollos wrote the book. Okay? Now, I'm not going to die on this hill. Okay? So I'm saying Apollos, and it could also very well not be Apollos. I could argue myself out of it before I get through these seven reasons why I think Apollos wrote the book. Yes, there are seven. I apologize. I can't eliminate them or else I wouldn't be fair to my own argument. Okay? So let's do this. Number one, he's from Alexandria. Okay? So that's it. We know that for a fact. All right? He traveled uh, in the Apostle Paul's kind of world in his realm. They kind of crisscrossed a lot. Uh, so there's that connection. He was from Alexandria. You see that specifically in Acts chapter 18? Write it down if you want to fact check me. If you're going to fact check me, don't put it on Facebook. Please. Okay? I don't want somebody to make fun of me later because I missed something. All right? Number two, he was taught by Paul's companions, Priscilla and Aquila. Okay? We see this also in Acts chapter 18. Number three, Paul knew Apollos personally. Okay? We're making a big deal about Paul. Because I think Paul was fundamental to the writing of Hebrews. I just don't think he did it. Okay? All right? So he knew Apollos personally and was very encouraging. Okay? This is one of the things that I love about Paul's ministry. You guys know Paul's history, the trajectory of his life. Kind of martyred a bunch of Christians, and then he became a Christian martyr. Okay? Read it. It's great. Maybe we'll do that sometime. Okay? Uh, number four, Apollos was highly educated. Very, very well educated. This guy was a genius. Okay, uh, he was educated in Alexandria, um, and he would have specifically been trained in the ancient Hebrew. Okay, so that also matters to my argument. Okay, number five, uh, he was a Jewish believer. We know this from Acts chapter eighteen as well. He had a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, specifically the Septuagint. Okay, he knew it really, 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 really well. Okay, 
Uh, where are we? Number six, he was a great defender of the Christian faith. Apollos was often known, Apollos' dad, by the way, was martyred early, like kind of the first century church, okay? Apollos was like right after that. Um, Apollos desired to be martyred, which sounds crazy to us in the world that we live in because we value breathing a lot. Um, but to be a martyr in the first century, the fifth century, even through like the 15th, 16th century, was something to be celebrated, right? I mean, we see if you've been to a, been to a Catholic church or a Greek Orthodox church, the martyrs are the stained glass now, okay? So martyrdom was something, uh, and Scripture is very clear about this, not to seek martyrdom, but it is a reality, okay? But martyrdom is the end result of extreme persecution. It just means you've been murdered for your belief in something. And Apollos kind of craved that. He was a kind of a renegade, if you will, a very smart renegade, but he was still a renegade nonetheless. And he went against his culture of the day, okay? So Apollos was a great defender of the Christian faith. Uh, lastly, number seven, okay? Are you with me yet? Did Apollos write the book? I don't know either. Number seven, he eventually became as influential as Paul and Peter, okay? Apollos doesn't have a, a, a letter uh, attached to his name, although Hebrews could, could have been. Um, so we just are thinking that this could be him because of his influence on the Christian church, okay? Apollos did a lot of really good work throughout church history. We good there? I mean, it was a decent argument. I really tried hard, but um, I'm not convinced either. So we're not gonna, we're not gonna like say it was Apollos or it was Paul or whatever. The King James, you guys know this, said that it, Hebrews was the epistle of Paul. That's how they titled it until like the 17th or 18th century. Okay, look it up. Do some research. This is important stuff, right? The fact that we don't know kind of gives some real meat to the, to the book itself, right? So we can't exclude Hebrews just because we don't know who wrote it. We do know, know who wrote it. It is the divinely inspired, inerrant, perfect, God-breathed word of God. That's really all we need to know, okay? So listen to what Origen said. This is from Eusebius, which is just look it up if you need to. But Origen, Origen, if you want to, said this. He said, who wrote the epistle of Hebrews? In truth, only God knows. And if he's good with it, I think I can get behind it. Okay? So here's what, here's what matters. Reading the Bible is the most important task of the Christian. It is the most important thing that you can commit your life to, whether you're being called to be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, a janitor, a pastor. Whatever you do, you do it through the lens of the inspired word of God. Okay? So let's go back to calling. My calling did not change when we left the church plant in Dallas, Texas. My job changed. My calling remains the same. So if you're in here and you're 19, you're 20 years old, and you're trying to figure out what you're going to major in, and you're like, good Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Or maybe you're 35 and you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. God has laid out what he expects you to do with your life. And that is to make him known and to make much of him in everything you do. Okay? He's far less concerned with what you do than how you do it. Does that make sense? Are you behind that? That's an argument I will die on. Okay? Let's jump in now to the text. This is Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, in every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Verse 3, how shall we escape 
if we neglect such a great salvation, if we declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. There's a fly up here, a big one. And so if you see me doing this, I'm trying to take its life, okay? All right. One of the key elements in biblical exegesis' context, okay? So here's where this is very fundamental, and I apologize, but I think it's important. Therefore is one of the most important words in all of Scripture, okay? Have you heard this before? When you see therefore, you must ask, what is it there for? Okay? Have you heard that? No? Somebody say yes. Any, okay. When you see it therefore, you ask yourself, what is it there for? It sounds silly, but it's very important. So we can't fully understand chapter 2 of Hebrews unless we've worked through chapter 1 of Hebrews. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. Very good. Thank you for participating in our exercise today. All right? So therefore, right here, connects chapter 2 to the context of chapter 1. Specifically, we see a, con a connection between the Old Testament text that the writer is leveraging for the people that he's writing to. Okay? So in chapter 1, there's a bunch of references to the Old Testament, including the Psalms, including Deuteronomy, including 2 Samuel. Okay? And in chapter 2, we see a direct reference to Psalm chapter 8. Okay? We do. It's there. We're going to get there. Okay? So Hebrews 1, we, we see this grand narrative of the situation of Jesus Christ. Okay? We're trying to really identify who Jesus is. And in chapter 2, it's a situation of Christians. Okay? Did you listen to the words that were used in the first four verses? Therefore, we, the church, brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus Christ, those who proclaim to be Christian, must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So the big idea in the first four verses is this idea of drifting, okay? This is important. It's a Greek word. You ready? Write it down. I'm going to see if you can spell it. I'm going to say it the best I can, and you're going to try to write it down, okay? The word is para-rio, okay? It's P-A, this is English, P-A-R-R-E-R-O, okay? You can Google that word and get some really good work on what this word actually means, it's used exactly one time, once, in all of Scripture, one time. So that's why it's important for us to know it and to understand it. That's why I bring it up. This is not one of those Greek words that you want to have put on your wrist, okay? What does your tattoo mean? Uh, the guy said it means drifting. I guess I'm drifting a lot. Don't do this one. There are other Greek words if you want to do that. I'll help you. This is not that, okay? So the word specifically means to be washed away. Think of a boat drifting at sea, right? If the rowers of a boat quit rowing, what happens to the boat? It just floats along at the discretion of the wind and the waves, okay? It's a dangerous thing for the people on board a boat to be drifting, right? It's exactly what you're trying not to do. You'll miss your port, you'll crash into your dock, you'll sink your boat, okay? Drifting is a dangerous thing when it comes to the seas. It's an especially dangerous thing when it becomes your Christian life, your walk with Jesus. There's some work on this word that means to be washed away or specifically to give up belief. And that definition is where I want us to sit a little bit. 
okay? So what does it mean to drift away? Does it mean to fall out of fellowship with God? Does it mean, most tragically, to lose salvation? Or does it mean to lose sight of the gospel? I don't know the author's specific intent, but based on what the rest of the Bible says, I don't believe it's to lose your salvation. I don't believe that's something that the Christian, the true Christian, who's been redeemed by the blood of Christ, I don't think you can drift away to the point of losing your salvation. Do you hear me loud and clear? Please say yes. If you don't hear, that, that was very good. That was very, very good. I have a five-month-old. All, actually, all my kids are sitting back there. So if over the last few weeks you've thought somebody's in the back speaking in tongues, it's a five-month-old who's learned to find her voice, okay? So that's her, all right? So this idea of drifting away is not the idea of losing your salvation. What Jesus accomplished in his life, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection from an empty tomb, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father was enough Okay? There's nothing else that's needed for your redemption, for your salvation back to the Father. Not a single thing. So if nothing is needed from you to be saved, there is nothing that you can do in order to lose your salvation once you've been saved. Are we good? Yes, we are. Okay? That's the only hope we have in the Christian gospel, the very good news. It's only good news if it remains good. Okay? All right. Verse 2 says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, speaking specifically of the messages throughout the Old Testament, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The second word that I want to bring to your attention is the word neglect, alameo. Okay? This one actually looks really pretty on paper. Again, not one that you want to have put on your body. Okay? This idea of neglect means to lose sight of, to ignore, to intentionally disregard. This isn't a good thing. Okay? Have you been there? You don't have to answer this one. Again, we're recording. Um, have you been there where your life with Christ has looked more like neglect than sincere attention? It's okay, because mine certainly has. Okay? Neglect is not a sin, it's a season. Okay? Do you hear that? Please tell me you hear it. Okay? Neglect is the reason we come together as a body. This is why Sunday mornings are so important. It's why family groups are so important. The body of Christ is a body. I need you and you need me to work together towards sanctification and ultimately towards glorification when Christ makes all things new, including my dry bones. Okay? This is a beautiful pointer towards the Christian gospel. The last thing I want to say here before we jump into verse 5 is you can't be a Christian and be still. I've said it a lot over the course of my ministry. The most dangerous thing to the Christian church is not policy, is not terrorism, the most dangerous thing to the Christian church is an apathetic Christian. It's someone who's lost sight of the gospel. Someone who proclaims to live for Jesus but never acknowledges his kingdom. These people are more dangerous than anything else. Christians cannot be still. They must move in the world. They must speak into the world. A better message than the world is telling us right now, by the way. 
There is great hope. If you pay attention, you find great hope here. Jesus is better. So ultimately, that's the whole point of Hebrews, the entire book. Jesus is better. Okay? He's better than the law. He's better than the government. He's better than sacrifices. He's better than the the Torah, Melchizedek. He's better than everything. Jesus is superior. He's greater. Uh, B.B. Warfield says that when Scripture speaks, God speaks. This is an important little quote. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. Listen to verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and this is where he quotes Psalm chapter 8. Specifically, this is verses 4 through 6. It says, It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Everything, all of it. You know that there's nothing excluded from everything? Nothing at all. Just a pastoral rabbit trail, if you'll let me do it. I'm going to do it anyways, but I know for a fact that there are people who walk through this door week after week after week, and on the surface, you look really good. And I don't mean like pretty, like physically, but you look like you have your stuff together. And you leave here, and you get in your car, and you go to your house or to your dorm room, or you go wherever you live, and your life is in shambles. I know this to be true. There's too many of us here for it not to be true. There's hope for whatever it is that you're walking through, and this is it, that everything, including that, is placed in subjection under the precious feet of Jesus. Whatever you're walking through, he's died for it. And he didn't stay dead. He rose again. We're going to get to do Easter, I think, hopefully, next year. (laughs) I had to miss it, skip it this year. It was kind of weird. We're going to get to do it again. And we celebrate the fact that Jesus didn't stay dead because the baggage that I carry around in life cannot be carried alone. He must take it. Okay? Listen to this. This is at the end of verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Verse 9, but, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely, can we say it together? I think this would be a good, can we say it together? Namely, Jesus. I know we can do a little better than that. I'm going to start over from the very beginning. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. No, listen, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Jesus. He has a name. A historical name, by the way. He existed in time and beyond it, which must be the craziest thing in the world. Fully God, fully man. We, each night before our kids go to bed, well, holier than thou, hold on. Not at each night. We try to most nights, okay? <laughs> if you don't have kids yet, you will one day realize this, and what I say will become true to you. It's not prophetic, it's just real, okay? You have good intentions for the sanctification of your children, the salvation of your kids, raising them in the ways of the Lord, and then you're tired, and it's time to go to bed, okay? 
brush your teeth and get in your, get in your bed. Don't get up, right? There's a lot of that. Most nights, when the Spirit is moving among us, we work through a catechism with our children, right? And these are the things that we're teaching them. We're asking them questions and responding with an answer, okay? Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This, y'all, this is the gospel. This is it. This is all there is to it. There's nothing to be added and nothing to be subtracted. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for me and for you. Throughout the theological grid of Christianity, one of the things that I'm most convinced of in a world that we live in today, specifically in the, our American culture, which is different than other places in the world, is that we need a robust biblical worldview. And I mean that with all sincerity. Everything that's going on in our world right now traces back to a rejection of a biblical worldview. And I'm not saying that to be political. I'm saying that to be pastoral. It doesn't matter what the issue is, okay? We need to reclaim a biblical worldview. Theology matters. The writer begins the passage by talking about drifting and then ends the passage, and we'll finish it next week, about how do we prevent drifting, okay? This is the, this is the life of the Christian. How do we follow Jesus in the midst of hurry and busyness and stress and anxiety and pandemics and unrest and tension and hate and all the things? How do we do that? How do we prevent the Christian from drifting? There are three things I want you to take away this morning. The first is that we need to read as biblical theologians. That means to do the hard work of exegesis, okay? It doesn't mean you need to know Greek, okay? Although if you're curious, I'd love to have a conversation with you because I think there's a lot of really good education about the Christian text that comes out of learning stuff like that. And so if you're kind of weird like me and you want to, you want to dive into some stuff like that, let me know. I would love to do that with you, okay? We need to read as biblical theologians. Specifically, we need a working Christology. When we read the Bible, every inch of the Bible, it needs to bring us back to the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Whether you're reading Leviticus or you're reading Hebrews, all of the Bible, all of it, points to Christ. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Amen? That would have been one where you should have done it, okay? Christ is the suffering servant. He's the one who willingly lays down his life for those who won't. He's the founder of our salvation. He's also the guarantor of our salvation. Here's what that means. You don't have to do anything to get it, okay? The most important message that we can hear as people, as people made in the image of God, is the message that comes from the Father through the Son and in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Read your Bible. Read it well. Read it often. Read it with people and read it alone. The second thing I, we need to take away is that we need to rest in the already and hope in the not yet. 
okay? You feel the tension of what's going on in this passage. And this is at the end of verse 8. Verse eight. At present, we do not yet see everything. That's where we are. It's uncomfortable, but it's where we are. We're in the already. Christ has established his kingdom, but it has not yet been consummated. This is the hope that we have. This is why we gather and sing and we preach and we do all the things as Christians. It's because we are leaning on the hope that he's coming back. If he doesn't come back, he is not Lord. That's not heresy. (laughs) You're like, what did he say? I'm serious. If he does not return and make all things new, this is nothing. We are in the already, but we have a hope in the not yet. The last is we need to rely on the one who tasted death and tasted it for all. I want to read to you, and please bear with me. Other people say things a lot better than I do. So when I find someone who says something really well, I'm just going to read it to you, okay? This is a quote from Al Mohler. He's the president of Southern Seminary, and uh, he's written a lot around the book of Hebrews. I don't know who he thinks wrote the book, okay? I didn't base my argument off of Al Mohler. Although, whatever he says is probably more accurate than what I said. Just throwing, <laughs> throwing that out there. Listen to this. The author, he cops out right there, okay? He doesn't know either. The author mentions that Christ has been crowned with glory and honor because he has fulfilled his messianic task of suffering and death. The results of his suffering is redemptive. Christ has tasted death for everyone. The first Adam plunged humanity into sin and death, and the last Adam was plunged into death for the sake of humanity. The work of the last Adam undoes the work of the first Adam. As the one who fulfills the task originally given to Adam, Jesus represents the ideal man who bears God's image rightly and exercises dominion over the cosmos. He has inherited the place of dominion spoken of in Psalm 8. He is superior to all things, including the angels. There's a theologian, blanking on his name, this is really bad for a guy who has a degree in theology and specifically in church history. Uh, someone said this, okay? I will get back to you next week. I'm going to look this up and come back. I'm preaching again next week, so decide to come or not. I don't know. I will be offended if you don't come next week. He said, there's not a square inch of universe that Christ does not look at and proclaim mine. Not an inch. That's what we have our hope in. That's where we rest. And ultimately, regardless of who wrote Hebrews, that's the point. So it doesn't matter who penned it. What matters is what it said. And the content is good. It's very good. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's love and mercy, and he's worthy of all our devotion, all of our worship, all of our exegesis, all of it. One of the things that my family and I try to do, and we don't always do it really well, is to bring people into our lives to mirror this stuff. It's really hard to listen to it and then implement it, but it is really easy to watch someone else do it and then do it for yourself. And so here's my last plea, is find someone more mature in their walk than you are. And here's the reality. If you look, it's not that hard to find, okay? If you look around even this room, 
whether you're 18 or you're 25 or you're 35 or you're 65, there's someone in this room whose walk with Christ is a little bit further along than yours. Find them. Seek them out. Ask them this one question. Will you read this with me? That's it. That's why family groups matter so much. If you're not in a family group yet, you need to get in one. I don't really know what that looks like. I'm leading a family group, but I still don't know what that looks like. Okay, So we're, gonna, we're working that out. Find us. We'll get you connected to one. Here's what we do. We gather around God's word. We read it. We chew it up. We spit it out. We put it back in our mouths. We chew it again. We spit it out. And together, as brothers and sisters, we're trying to find Jesus. Okay? Family groups matter. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for just the time of worship here. Most of all, uh, we're thankful that you've left us this precious book that we can work through it at our own pace, that we can read it. I'm thankful that we live in a time in history where all of us can have access to this. I pray that we wouldn't take it for granted. Would you help remind us of all the time throughout history where people didn't have access to your word? God, would you help us to be faithful stewards of the gospel? Would you correct us in those seasons where we drift? Would you encourage us in those seasons where we just want to drift? Would you place us in biblical community where we can work through your word together? Father, our greatest prayer is that in all things that you would be made much of, that Christ would be glorified and that his kingdom would come on earth taught us to pray those things, and we pray that we would embody them. We pray that our worship would bring you glory. We pray that our private lives would bring you glory, and our public lives would bring you glory. Would you help clarify our calling so that as a body, as a family of believers, we work together in a unified mission of declaring the gospel to every inch of this planet? We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this church. We thank you for this building to meet in. I thank you for my brothers and sisters this morning, encouraged by the way that they read and respond to your spoken word this morning. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.